We have here a joint study undertaken in 1961 with the International Business Machines Corporation for the purpose of determining if it was possible to eliminate the paperwork which has burdened the nurses and doctors in hospitals for these many years. In 1964, 15 input and output terminals were... In spite of the relative short time that we have been working with the terminals, we now can see certain advantages that are taking place. It is going to be possible to relieve the nurses and the doctors of some of their paperwork. It is going to be possible to have correlation of diseases which we have not had before. And it is going to be possible to eliminate errors in medications and in tests of this kind which would have been harmful to the patient. There's an article just posted this week on uh, JAMA Online written uh, by a guy named Robert Wachter, you know that name? He wrote a book called The Digital Doctor that was a bestseller. He talks about will generative AI actually deliver for healthcare, and, and I think he just makes the great case. It's gonna be quite a while before it has much to do with quality of patient care, but it can have an enormous impact on productivity and efficiency. I mean, doctors complain, rightly, that they spend too much time doing paperwork and administrative stuff. And AI has huge potential for helping with that. I mean, we have the world's most incredibly complex and inefficient healthcare system. And the administrative burden of that falls on doctors and, and healthcare systems. That was Dr. Mark Braunstein. He's a guru of informatics or FIRE. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But right now, when I say fast healthcare interoperability resources, you think. Right. Okay, well, this BCR conversation may seem complex, but it's really quite simple and could quite possibly end human existence. Today, we'll be talking to two experts who are using the power of artificial intelligence to keep us healthy. You're listening to Bar Crawl Radio, and we're recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar. Today, appropriately across the street from the mortuary, and we're several blocks across town from Mount Sinai Hospital, where last year, yours truly had a major heart operation. Don't know if AI was involved, but since I'm feeling pretty good, here we go. That was Alan Winson, and I am Rebecca McCain. And today, we are talking with Dr. Bronstein, the guru of fire. Not the burning kind, but F-H-I-R, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, a technology helping physicians to access everything about our medical history and condition, easy and fast. Later, Vince Hartman will join the conversation. Vince is co-founder and CEO of Abstractive Health, a new company that is reducing the physician burnout through the power of generative AI. But first, Peter Frisshoff introduced us to Dr. Bronstein, and he joined us at Gephardt's for the recording. Peter is the founder of Medscape, an online resource medical news for physicians and healthcare professionals. We asked Peter to introduce his longtime friend. I met Mark way back in 1972 when I had hair. And, and mine was black. <laughs> and I was a reporter for the New Physician magazine, which is a magazine for physicians in training, meaning medical students, interns, and residents. And Mark was a 
medical student, you were still a student, I believe, yes. at the University of South Carolina in Charleston. And the medical university. The medical university. Of, we had heard about Mark by reputation. Here was this guy who graduated from MIT and wound up in Charleston in medical school, and he had created what we heard was this amazing system called an electronic uh, medical record that actually permitted uh, clinicians to document what was going on with their patients while they were doing their examination at a family practice clinic. And the amazing other thing about it was that it was connected to the local pharmacy. So, of course, this was a very controlled environment. It was at a medical school, but it was still amazing. And I was dispatched down to Charleston to write about this system. And it kind of blew my mind. And so I got to know Mark a little bit about it. And then the interesting thing about that, which he can tell you more about, was that he later told me that he learned so much from this installation, he considered it a, a failure and basically made the decision to focus on other people in healthcare, primarily pharmacists and not physicians, and give up on them for a while. But he always had in the back of his mind that he wanted to create medical information highways for everybody, including patients. So that's how I became friends with Mark uh, more than 50 years ago. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. I, I think it's kind of amazing to, to think of the time when we weren't sharing information, and, and, and you, you well, discovered that. Well, to some degree, we still aren't. All right. I wasn't clear on what Peter was talking about and thought perhaps some BCR listeners were not clear as well. So I looked it up, and here's what I learned. Every time one of us visits our doctor, medical information is collected on how we are doing. That is a lot of healthcare information on you and me over our lifetimes. In the past, this massive amount of information was stored on different systems, which did not communicate with each other easily, making the clinician's job difficult and led to inefficient care and, at times, serious errors. FIRE, or Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, is a standard or set of rules for how each of these medical record systems are allowed to exchange our healthcare information. The rules are designed to be adaptable to different systems, allowing everyone's healthcare information to be available quickly, easily, and securely to both you and me and all the doctors taking care of us, no matter which system these records are stored in. Okay, back to Mark Bronstein and his first attempts at establishing an electronic medical record system at a family practice clinic in Charleston in 1972 when he was a medical student. So actually, this, the, this clinic was decades ahead of its time. Um, I wish I could say I fully appreciated that at the time, but I didn't, but in retrospect, I do. It was an effort to model the entire healthcare ecosystem of a community. We had medical students, medical residents, 
dentists and dental students, pharmacists and pharmacy students, social workers and social work students, all working in the same building and caring for a population of about 10,000 people. The EMR bound them all together. Everyone was using the same electronic medical record system, which is still not really true in most cases today. And we were doing things when they were in the clinic, but looking at, say, all of the diabetic patients to see if they're taking their medications like they should and intervening if they didn't. I mean, we would send a pharmacy student to their home if they weren't taking their medications properly. Well, these are all things that today that everybody agrees we should be doing, and we're kind of getting serious about doing them, but this was 50 years ago. Right. And you, you helped start this, but wasn't there some inciting incident that... As a freshman medical student took an elective in uh, the outpatient clinics, the charity clinics, the Medical University of South Carolina is by far the top healthcare system in the state, and we had a big clinic for people who couldn't afford to pay, and I worked in the diabetes clinic. And uh, as is true of people who have chronic diseases like diabetes, they, they had multiple medical problems and were seen a lot by different people. And this was all paper charts, and the charts got so thick that they literally used red wagons to pull them around the clinic. They were so heavy. And what I observed was, of course, nobody actually read the chart. Who could? Who had time to do it? And everybody would just start all over again. Um, and ask the same questions yes, that they've that been was, asking. Yeah. And, and if there was useful information in the chart they needed to know, the odds of their knowing it were near zero. I had come to medical school from MIT already interested in computing with the idea of combining computers and medicine. Here's Vince, which uh, a, a cousin of mine who was a prominent orthopedic surgeon here in New York City had put in my head, came to me, this is the opportunity. We need to digitize all of this. That eventually led me to meet uh, the, the professor who started this clinic. And he was interested in the idea too, but knew nothing about computing. And I knew quite a bit about computing, but not very much about medicine yet. But we got together and worked. And believe it or not, as a medical student, I ended up getting a $600,000 grant from the federal government. And we built one of the first four fully functional ambulatory, not in the hospital, for use outside of the hospital, electronic medical record systems in the United States. But Peter's correct. Uh, while the pharmacists really embraced this for a lot of reasons that we probably don't have time to get into, the, the doctors used it, but we just didn't have the technology to, to deal with them properly like we do today. And, and, and that, that's kind of what we're here for, is to talk about where we were and what you, what you did to get us started on this, because I've heard of E EMRs and EHRs for a long time, and here you, you're the guy who got it started. Well, I'm one of the people, but so 15 years ago, less than 5% of the hospitals in the United States and less than 5% of the physicians in the United States had an electronic medical record, despite the fact that we had them working years before. So the, the, the story of health informatics in this country actually starts under the administration of George W. Bush believe it or not. He created an office, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, whose job it was to solve this problem. Unfortunately, no money was allocated to do it. And I knew the guy that took the job initially and spoke to him at, a, at the big kickoff meeting and asked him how he was going to do it with no money. And he said, well, market forces. The problem, of course, the market forces were in the reverse. So in comes the Obama administration, the stimulus program. 
Rahm Emanuel, I think, was key to this. They put $30 billion of the stimulus money into let's incent hospitals and physicians to, to acquire these systems. Of course, it makes sense because the biggest payer is the federal government. Medicare is by far the biggest payer. So if there were going to be efficiencies and quality improvements, the, the government would benefit from them. Can I just ask you, what, why do you think doctors weren't like, like yes and like hungry for this? It seems like this is, this is all about them doing their work. They didn't see it that way. Most of these systems were sold to hospitals based on billing capture. In other words, you put in this system and you'll capture what the doctor's ordering when they order it and you'll be sure you bill for it. They weren't being marketed or designed to improve the quality of care or to make the doctor's life easy. Let's just be honest about it. Today, virtually every hospital in the country has an electronic medical record. Keep in mind, 15 years ago, it was all on paper. No different, really, than the little red wagon. Even just 15 years ago. Yeah, even no different than the little red wagon. We got to the point where the government at the beginning of the Obama administration basically put aside the money and created incentives for hospitals and doctors to implement EMRs. Now let's go to the end of the Obama administration. November of 2016, there was a law passed and signed by President Obama called the 21st Century Cures Act. Now the purpose of this law was to help facilitate patients donating their health record data for research. But the wiring, the digital wiring necessary to do that became a matter of regulation. Now I have spent my whole career apologizing for the U.S. healthcare system, both here and abroad. As a result of this act and what it does, I can now speak here and in Australia and other places with my Superman costume on because we're the world leader in the digitization of health because of this piece of legislation. What it did, I'm going to keep this really simple, what it did effectively and eventually in regulation was say that all of these electronic medical record systems had to make the patient's data available to the patient in digital form using a standard called FHIR. It's not terribly important that listeners know exactly what FHIR is at any technical level, but basically it does two things. All right, but first, FHIR stands for? Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources. I can't say interoperability anymore. (laughs) The guy who invented it is a friend of mine, Graham Greve. He's an Australian, which is part of the reason why I spend so much time in Australia these days. But uh, not not the world's best name, really, acronym, but it's stuck. Nobody, FHIR really stuck because you can play with it. Right. You know, you can do anything on FHIR, right? So, and you're going to talk about interoperability yes. and what that is. Yeah, well, that's what FHIR does. And it does it in by doing two things. It creates a standard for packaging the data. So it doesn't matter whether it comes from EPIC. Now, EPIC is far and away the most widely installed EMR among major health systems and hospitals in the United States. There are other major systems, Cerner, and a company called Meditech that's less well known, but it's the leader in community hospitals out in, outside of the major areas. And it doesn't matter that they internally represent health data differently, however their system designers wanted to do it. When they make it available to the outside world, it has to be packaged according to FHIR. 
And this is done for the doctor no. to be able to read them. No. Originally for the for anyone. Okay. But the original impetus was for the patient. And we'll get to I'll go straight to that in a second. But and the other thing it does is to define how you get the data through something that's called an application programming interface. API. Or API. Yeah. So what does that mean to the average listener of this podcast? Well, it, it means if you have an iPhone or if you have an Android phone now, you can get your record in digital form, actually in fire format, from your hospital. doesn't matter whether it's New York Presbyterian or Mount Sinai or Northwell. doesn't matter. And have it on your phone where it's available to you. And more importantly, it's available to apps, to tools that might be developed to help someone with your particular medical problem manage it or track it or whatever they want. Now, relatively few listeners of this podcast even understand that. All right, if I, if I were to go to my, my Fire app and call up my, I mean, what would I see? Would I be able to read it and understand it? Well, the data it comes in Fire, which is not in a format. Yeah, but I, you, I mean, Vince or I can, and Peter can kind of understand it, but it's there for apps to turn it into something that you can read and understand. And, and most of the apps on your phone use APIs today for other purposes. They go off to some server somewhere and get the data, probably in the same format that Fire uses, and then they turn it into a useful form for you. So that's, we're just doing this for healthcare. Fire basically is collecting information about me and you and everybody else that is being put in by our doctors and our health officials, and it's collected together, and then it's I can look at it and see it through an yeah. app. Well, it, it's it's transforming the data that's in the EMR in who knows what format into a standard format and providing a standard way of getting it. So now app developers can write once, and their product will work with all EMRs. It isn't quite that simple, but it's... Before the listeners have a heart attack, this is under the control of the patient. Many listeners probably have access to a patient portal mm -hmm. from their hospital. And they like have Mount a, Sinai has yeah, my and they chart. Have a, well, good. And, they, and that's my chart. That's right. right. And they, you have a ID and a password, or you may use biometrics, your fingerprint, or even your face. That's how you get this. You have to get into the portal, and then you can get it. So in theory, only you have access to it. And then once it's on your phone, you can share it. Um, so if you're an elderly person uh, with a, a family caregiver who's located somewhere else, um, they can have access to your data. And, and people are actually developing uh, software to help in that scenario, to help caregivers care for their elderly using this information. So I have seven or eight different healthcare providers, right? Not counting my eye doctor, my, I'm not even counting my dentist, my therapist, my podiatrist, my acupuncturist, my witch doctor. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not including all those. Is all that data eventually potentially gathered? That's an excellent question. So I don't know about witch doctors, or, <laughs> but, but it, it, it is common that people who have multiple medical problems, those people drive the disproportionate share of all U.S healthcare spending, are seen by multiple clinicians. You could get kind of a confusing mishmash of stuff. And Apple's done a really good job of 
bringing all that together and doing what we call curating that data and normalizing that data. What so is that program called? So call? it all looks like it comes from one source. It's Apple Health. Apple Health. And it's in your phone. It's, it's standard. You don't have to download it. But you do have to know it's there, and you have to set it up. What does that mean? Well, that means patients have access to their data. They get a unified view of their data, despite the fact that they're being cared for even by multiple health systems. So you, maybe you have a, a doctor at Mount Sinai and another doctor in New York Presbyterian or at Northwell. It all kind of looks like the same unified thing. We've been talking about the patient, but also the doctors use this too. Yes? Yes. Fire is being used for physicians in a, in a big way. And in fact, one of the really interesting applications is something called clinical decision support, which is helping physicians make the right decisions about how to diagnose and treat patients with a, a problem. You've written, Mark, that any human being can only hold on to maybe five or six different ideas at a time, and now there's 100, 200 ideas. And so does FIRE help my cardiologist with that? A lot of mistakes are made in medicine. Uh, studies have shown that these, this group of patients with multiple chronic diseases who drive most U.S. healthcare costs only have about a 50-50 chance of getting what is known to be the best treatment. That doesn't mean they're being killed, but they're not getting the, the, the best, most cost-effective, most clinically effective care. And, and a big part of that is what you just said. I mean, the amount of information that doctors have to absorb and manage in not very much time is, is overwhelming. So we've long thought computers would help with this. So let, let me give you a, a war story. Back in the 70s, a, guy, a doctor named Ted Shortliff, who's famous in my field, he, he was at Stanford many years, he's now at Columbia, for his PhD, wrote a program called Mycin. Now you've probably heard of things like erythromycin, and so it's named for that family of antibiotics. And what Mycin did was help doctors pick the best antibiotic for a patient. Did it work? Well, yes, in fact, it was assessed by Stanford infectious disease doctors as doing a better job <laughs> a high percentage of the time than infectious disease doctors did in picking the best antibiotic. This is not artificial intelligence. It's what's called an expert system, which is what artificial intelligence was at the time. They pulled out of the minds of these infectious disease doctors the rules they used and they inculcated that software. It's not what we would call artificial intelligence these days. Well, so obviously, it, since it did a better job than doctors did, it was widely used and everybody was happy. Well, unfortunately, that's not what happened. It wasn't used at all. And there were two reasons for that. People were highly suspicious of the idea of computers telling doctors what to do back then. And there still is a degree of that today. But the more fundamental problem was doctors were charting on paper. Mycin was a computer program. So to use it, you had to go to a computer, re-enter a whole bunch of information you'd already written down on the piece of paper, answer a bunch of questions. It would take about 30 minutes. Today, Mycin would be a smart on-fire app that runs in the EMR right in the same area of the screen the doctor uses to do everything else that automatically gets all the information it needs and typically just gives the doctor the recommendation by at the click of the mouse. And, of course, people are very interested in the applications of modern artificial intelligence 
to that sort of thing. Fire can do much. Can can do that, and it seems to me it well, can do a it, lot. Well, it creates a substrate, yeah. a lingua franca, if you will. Yeah. I mean, healthcare data is very messy. It's extremely messy, and fire, you know, creates a standard. More than collecting information, more than doing this clinical, um, you know, uh, help for the doctors. I mean, it can do things like, I mean, I was listening to you, um, continuity of care, patients reporting their own mm -hmm. issues, collecting all of that information. I mean, um, this avoiding of mistakes, which, which you've already mentioned, um, the pulling together of massive amounts of information and pulling out. Tell us one other thing that FIRE can do that you're excited about, that maybe you haven't talked about yet. Well, it, it can be the basis for a new form of artificial intelligence. So I guess we got to dig in here. So everyone who's listening to this, it should, it, I'm sure is familiar with the whole idea of chat GPT and, and maybe they've actually used it. That's called a large language model, uh, underlining the word language. And it's, it's trained on the entire corpus of the internet, good, bad, indifferent. There's another guy whose name I'll mention, Ricky Sahu, who's in Boston. And he was, I think, the first to realize that if every EMR in the United States is going to have a fire gateway, there was a real opportunity in sort of getting in the middle of all that and creating a, a highway that people could use to get all that data without having to go individually to all 10,000 health systems. That company did very well. So Ricky is still chairman of his company, but he started a new company called Gen Health. I, I got to make this point clear because it's really, in my mind, of enormous importance. Gen Health is um, a, a model, a generative AI model, like Chat, like GPT. I mean, Chat is the front end. The real model is called GPT, but it isn't trained on the internet. It's trained using fire on the records, the actual records of 40 million people who have consented to have their data used for purposes like this. Now, I think it's going to have a profound impact on the use of AI in healthcare because I already had the same idea. I mean, you shouldn't be using models trained on the internet. You should be using models trained on patient care. I think in the end that that may be the most important. Now, I, I think this approach to building uh, generative AI is the right approach. I have no, I have no commercial or other involvement with this. This is my heartfelt belief, and that we're going to see this technology and probably others like it being used for things like making sure that every patient is being given the right care understanding what the likely clinical outcome is if the patient stays on the care they're on versus what would happen if they were on something else. And, and these are just two of many use cases, it's a term we use in the field, um, that Ricky is suggesting his model will be good for. You're listening to Barkwell Radio, 
We're talking with healthcare informatics interoperability expert Mark Braunstein on the enormous potential for artificial intelligence to grow through the FHIR interface to access medical records of eventually maybe all of humanity. When we return, we'll be speaking with Vince Hartman, creator and CEO of Abstractive Health, a new company reducing physician burnout using generative artificial intelligence. Okay, I, I think it's time to meet Vince Hartman. Um, Vince is co-founder and CEO of Abstractive Health. It's a new company that's reducing physician burnout through the power of generative AI. And it's a bit more than that. So a little bit of background on myself. I've been in healthcare uh, about 13 years now. So I got started working at Epic Systems in uh, 2010. So I did the Peace Corps actually for three years. And then uh, coming back from the Peace Corps, I worked in Madison, Wisconsin for about two years. I was a product manager in the medical records or HIM division with Epic. Uh, and then, so I saw firsthand the uh, explosion of electronic health records across the country during that time period. Uh, you must really have been 12 at the time. <laughs> uh, Probably like 24, I'd okay. have to do the math. Okay. <laughs> and uh, thank you for referring to me as very young still. I you, like you, that. You, you look that way, yeah. Uh, and I was then a consultant in healthcare for six years with Accenture. So I traveled around the country to a number of hospitals helping with uh, fire HL7 integrations uh, into the electronic health record systems. And I saw firsthand physicians struggle uh, using the computer systems and the rise of burnout uh, across the country. Um, a lot of them did not like me because uh, I was pushing computer systems that sometimes are not like built for the physician in mind, uh, not like the best user interfaces. Took it upon myself to become really good at natural language processing and machine learning. And I went back to uh, grad school to Cornell Tech here uh, on Roosevelt Island in New York City. Um, did two years of research uh, in that field and uh, spun out from Cornell a company, Abstractive Health. So, so Vince Hartman, Abstractive uh, Health um, is one of those ways that uses this enormous amounts of information to, as I understand it, help doctors. Could you talk about your, your business? Of course. So Abstractive Health is a physician AI assistant that integrates directly into the EHR system. So and again, Epic, the HR Meditech, is, HR is electronic product? health oh. record that we've been mentioning. We so some of the big ones are Epic, Athena Health, Cerner, Meditech. So when the physicians are in their computer system, uh, currently they have to a lot of times just write their notes manually. Uh, they get a little bit of help through templates that will like extract like vitals or labs, but it's so, a very so when, bare bones. It's like those rule-based approaches. But they're it's doing not it, smart. They're, they're typing it in. Yeah, they're computer. typing it in. So when I'm with my cardiologist and I'm telling him about aches and pains and he's turning to his computer and he's typing, that's what he's doing. Correct. So okay. uh, they may have, they would have done this on paper 15 years ago, but they have been in forced in a way to put it all into the computer. There's a lot of benefits of doing so, uh, as we've been mentioning, that they can be 
uh, alerted if they put in the wrong medication via computer system, but they are also forced to uh, type it all out. And they have to do it um, based on the user system that the computer provides. And so. Isn't this one of the reasons for insurance purposes, too, so the doctor can substantiate their claims and then the insurance will agree to pay the... So the computer systems were originally built for insurance. Uh, a lot of the healthcare in the United States, a lot of the innovation first starts with uh, providing an easier way for the physicians to be paid. So um, they were very built for uh, taking the medical language of the physician and then translating that into billing codes so that when you file uh, your claim that it will be a higher chance that it'll be paid and faster. Um, so yeah, the, uh, the electronic health record systems provide a, an incentive for that process. Physicians may get a, uh, have mentioned to me numerous times is that like uh, administrative bodies of the hospital have incentives from the government to enact certain policies into the EHR systems. Um, and the physicians are now forced, um, where they could have maybe uh, chose a little when they were writing it on paper, but like those alerts, um, you, a computer system can make you do those alerts. Uh, this is the pain that they've uh, encountered from a user interface perspective because um, they felt at times that they weren't the uh, individuals uh, building such a system and having an impact on how it would behave for them, that it was like top-down led by insurance or administrators telling them to, um, or like if you're having a, a visit with a uh, 14-year-old female, um, and maybe you understand that they are not pregnant in front of you for a pediatric visit, the computer would maybe force you to address uh, pregnancy because, like, for a medication. I and can so see why doctors could, wouldn't like this. So, I mean, there's uh, levels of um, which ones are okay at it and which ones are very bad. None of them are amazing at addressing these alerts. So the alerts can be very beneficial to health outcomes, to, but if you don't enact alerts well in a user interface structure, it can be very in, like cumbersome and annoying. To so talk about abstractive health. What do you, yeah, what sorry, do? You do? Like, yeah. <laughs> so what abstractive health is doing is, uh, well, physicians, as you've mentioned, when you're uh, in your visit with them, they don't have the time to dig through the medical chart uh, to really understand who you are, even though they have all that data now from fire in their EHR system, in their electronic health record computer system, uh, they only have about three minutes to like prepare before a visit with you. And you may have gone to another physician a month ago, and they will have no like a, like time to review that content. So we're creating a uh, con a comprehensive summary of your medical history for the physician so they can understand quickly uh, who, what you are, and like what's been happening to you. And it also assists for them to write that note faster. So they don't have to, because they after the visit, they have to take that summary content and manually do it in the computer system. And that's what abstractive health is helping physicians to do? Correct. So we're uh, doing research at New York Presbyterian uh, and uh, working with emergency department physicians, inpatient physicians to take your patient content and so that when you arrive in the emergency department or when you leave, that visit information is done automatically using 
generative AI large language models. Now, I know Alexa, when I'm in my living room, she's listening to me. Uh, is it possible for the computer to listen to my conversation with my cardiologist? There are. Pull uh, out information? Yeah, there me? are companies that are focused on doing the uh, doctor-patient conversation automatically. So uh, that uh, dictation would be transcribed and like condense it automatically. We haven't entered into the space of uh, voice to text. We've been uh, taking the, the data, the comprehensive, and making uh, tools for the physician so they can understand it more. But that's a very good applicable tool that you could build. You that. must have talked to a lot of doctors before you start. You yeah, so I've probably this. talked to, at this point, hundreds of physicians. And uh, we, I, we're doing a, I have so many acronyms in my head. I'm trying to think of what it stands for. HCI, Human Computer Interaction, I believe it is, for uh, uh, making that user interface system work well for physicians. So Informatics we're doing is rich in, in, <laughs> in those initials. <laughs> and so. I was a consultant for seven years, so I'm like filled with acronyms in my head. Right, 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 right. Um, I, I, I'm a, um, um, I teach research writing at, at a college, and I had my students write about uh, physician burnout. Uh, I, I know that abstractive uh, health is concerned with that. Uh, uh, what is physician burnout, and how have you helped with that? So as we've been mentioning, the, well, so the biggest cause of physician burnout uh, is the electronic health record system. So over the last as like 15 years, they were documenting on paper and uh, this historic push to put them all into computer systems um, has put a lot of uh, workload on them. So uh, with serious outcomes. With, yeah. So. Uh, there's a lot of data. Physicians are um, some of the most depressed workers in the country. Highest suicide rates. Most physicians would not want their own children to become doctors. We did a program on physician suicide. And yeah. we're focused very much on reducing physician burnout through um, creating automated tools so they don't have to um, spend as much time writing the uh, the data themselves into the computer system. So, so that when the physician is doing her work that she wants to do, which is to help their patient, they can they could be with their patient yeah uh physicians went to med school to do diagnoses and assessments and they very much are okay when they're in their computer system to uh, write out a few sentences about what is the care needed for you um, but a lot of their work is administrative burden at this moment and it's digging through the record and re-summarizing what happened to you previously um, or it's uh, clicking through those alerts to make sure they're uh, informed how to do what they view they already know, the care for you. Um, so it's, it's reducing, it's frustrating. frustrating. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. A lot of the older physicians have uh, retired because of the, they just felt it was easier to not be a part of the system anymore. So. And, and also too though, haven't a lot of those questions been moved to the, I mean, I take about, when I go to the doctor, I take about three pre, you know, fill out forms asking me all these, you know, innumerable questions. A little secret is a lot of those forms don't even get into front of the physician. I they're just, so. <laughs> they're just filled that. out in a lot of ways for right uh, insurance or administrative reasons. Yeah. Um, uh, because they, again, they don't have a lot of the time to review your patient questionnaires. Uh, so there's not really a good tool at the moment to automate the questionnaire to 
um, inform them in a meaningful way about the information. And to some extent, we're in, engaged in a process like sausage making right now. Um, I mean, there, there are so many wonderful things that can be done. I'm going to go back to Remedy, the company I mentioned earlier. And I, well, full disclosure, I'm on their board. Um, they, they bring together for physician. This is all done with fire. All the information, if you're interested in the patient's diabetes, you don't have to go click around and look in the chart to get all the information. It's all brought together on one screen, including the, the, the data about the, uh, the, the patient's glucose levels at home, because they, they bring that into the screen from these devices like continuous glucose monitors people use. That are, that are embedded in the bodies. Well, the, the continuous glucose monitoring is, is a patch, but it's, it goes to an app on a phone. Yeah. But they, they give the physician a 360-degree view of what's going on in this patient in one screen, which EMRs don't do. Um, so there is hope. And there's been a lot of pressure from the healthcare industry itself and lobbying to in like 2016, 17 to stop fire. So um, because it, imagine if you were like Apple and you like there's a sense of um, if you keep people in your ecosystem of like iMessage. So, for example, iMessage with like the blue uh, text messaging, um, you can't get that sort of on an Android phone. And like iMessage also, you can't open it on a Windows computer, but you can very much use it in a Mac. So Apple has created this sort of like benefit of staying in their ecosystem using benefit iPhones. Benefit they're forcing Macs. you. Well, it, and so at times, if you create these sort of like universal structure of apps, it can lead for individuals to not have much sticking power to the electronic health record system. So there's a little bit of lobbying yeah, that I, could push against it. Another thing that 21st Century Cures Act does is outlaw data blocking. I mean, and what Vince said is absolutely correct. Uh, big health systems like the ones you have here in New York view digital technology kind of the same way the airlines view their frequent flyer programs. You know, we're going to hook you on us, and you're going to get all of your care in our system. Um, fire kind of breaks that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in fact, it's now illegal for health systems to prevent patients, for, to create unreasonable barriers, I think is the words they, to patients getting their data on their phone or, and doing whatever they want to with it. Um, so, I mean, look, if it, it's not a 100% uh, rosy situation. Yeah, is it all accurate, the information that's in FIRE? I mean, what, it's it no more accurate than whatever's in the EMR. I mean, FIRE doesn't know whether the, the correct data was recorded in the MR. It just gives you a, a convenient, standardized way of getting it. What about privacy issues? Well, there's a pretty strict yeah. OAuth process yeah. um, that, like, is built into the API structure, and so um, it ensures that, like, a patient is accessing only their specific record, and physicians only uh, can access records that they have the like authorization to see. So well, that. Healthcare is one of the most regulated and secure industries, so that's all built into Smart on Fire. Yeah, and in the early days when EMRs came about, people used to always ask me when I gave a talk, very predictable, well, what about the security of the data? And what I used to say, and it's true, so I tell you what, let's you and I to the questioner put on white coats and walk into any hospital in this city 
walk up to any nurse's station and grab any chart and walk out with it and see if anybody stops us. And the odds are they wouldn't. So it's much tighter now. Is it perfect? Of course not. We all hear about data breaches. But healthcare data is as well protected as anything can be right now. I want to get to one other thing and kind of get a little deeper into artificial intelligence and what and what it's doing, whatever that is, which most of us don't understand it. You two do, but, but most of us don't. Mark, you recently wrote in an article about Mustafa Suleiman, mm -hmm. who you were very impressed by, I felt, co-founder of Google DeepMind, and you described an experience with ChatGPT called Pi. No, it, it's not ChatGPT. Yeah, what is it? It's Pi, which is a competitor to ChatGPT. To ChatGPT. Thank, okay, so thank you for clarification. So who, who is Suleiman? What is Google DeepMind? And you can you give us an example of what DeepMind does? I came armed for bear on this one. All right, one. there we go. Um, well, first of all, DeepMind was founded in 2010 in London. And it developed what I consider to be the most important application of artificial intelligence in healthcare, biology, and medicine to date, a program called AlphaFold. Say that again, Alpha? AlphaFold. Fold. So, we all know what DNA is, right? It's the instructions that are in every one of our cells for life. Most of those instructions, well, they all really, code for proteins. And proteins are really the building blocks of life. Like all of chemistry, proteins are all about shape. The, the, their shape determines everything. So for decades, people have been interested in using X-ray crystallography and newer technologies in a lab to figure out the shape of proteins. And over 60 years, um, they, they had worked out about 160,000 protein shapes. That sounds like a lot. And these are all related to humans? No, everything. Everything. But, but okay. certainly humans. There are actually 200 million proteins known. About 15 years ago, I had lunch with a Nobel laureate who was visiting Georgia Tech. And given what I'm interested in, the topic quickly turned to when will artificial intelligence be able to figure out the shape of proteins? Something I was very interested in. And his best guess was 50 years. Well, there, there is a biannual, biannual competition called CASP where people um, are asked to use whatever technology they've come up with to, to go from the, the amino acid sequence of the protein, which you can determine easily enough, to its shape. So just given its sequence, tell us what its shape is going to be. You, you with me? I am. And also the shape is not flat. It's three-dimensional. Oh, they're unbelievably complex. complex. Okay. Uh, the complexity is mind-boggling. I could give you an example if we had time. And this is what we're made up of. This is everything. It's this everything. is life. It's life. That's right. I mean, DNA is instructions, but this is what it in the instructions do. Well, to make a long story short, in, the, in 2020, at the 14th CASP competition, so they've been doing this for 28 years, DeepMind's AlphaFold for all practical purposes, purposes, solve protein folding. 
Now, this is big, right? It, uh, according to uh, one of the judges, Andre Lupus, of the Max Planck Institute in Germany, he's a very prestigious guy at a very prestigious institute, quote, this will change medicine, it will change research, it will change bioengineering, it will change everything, end quote. This is a conservative scientist. It is, without any question, in my mind, the most significant application of artificial intelligence to date. AlphaFold is open. Uh, they've posted this structure of the 200 million known protein. They predicted them. And any listener, I can read out the URL, it's a short URL, can go and play with it. You can actually look them up. It's HTTPS colon slash slash alphafold.ebi.ac.uk slash. Uh, in 2014, I think it was, AlphaFold, I mean, DeepMind was acquired by Google. So it's part of Google, which is, as Google tends to do, and I'm going to credit for this, it's still open source. So Mustafa it was one of the co-founders of all this. There were three people. Um, and he's left. He's now created a company called Inflective. That's right. I think it's Inflection uh, That's AI. Inflection AI. And um, they're creating something called PI, P-I. You can go to pi.ai, which is a, in, in his view, and I couldn't agree more, a much more human-like. All right, tell us about that experience. I went to PI, and I was blown away. So was I. So the, what I did, being the person I am, I, I had previously gone to ChatGPT and described a patient in, in some level of clinical detail. And I've said to ChatGPT, create that patient's chart in fire. And it immediately did it. No, I didn't even say anything, here it is. And it was accurate. I did the same thing with Pi. And Pi engaged me in, if you, if you go to my LinkedIn page, in this fascinating conversation. I went, I went to it. Yeah. Now, I will tell you, I'm, you know, I'm as trained as a physician. I'm probably not the most clinically expert person out there, given how I've actually spent my career. But I can't, couldn't ask a series of questions that are more interesting and insightful than Pi did to learn about the patient so that it could do a good job of creating their chart. Um, at the end of which it said, you know, by the way, I, I can't create a, a, a fire patient chart. I'm, I'm not allowed to do that or whatever. But forget that. So here is a generative AI model, presumably trained on the Internet, that was an ex is an expert clinical history taker. Where did that come from? Can, can, can I add something else? It's not only... Was I, I felt it was listening to me. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like, and I gave it a British woman's accent, because you can give it the accent you want. And it, I prefer Australian myself. And it, it kind of was doing expressive, effective kinds of sounds, like breathing and like, oh, and I made a joke and it went, ha ha, you know. And it's, it, human, it's human like. It's certainly human like. And, and you said in your article, it might be emergent. Yeah, well, I was talking about the series of questions it asked me. Now, Ricky Sahu's Gen Health model is trained on medicine. You'd expect it to be able to engage in a 
series of questions. But Pi is a general language model. How did it gain the ability to, to ask the series of questions it did, which I reproduced exactly like it occurred on, on my, my article? Is that what's called emergent behavior? Are, are we seeing you know, AI starting to show signs of intelligence? Well, I, if, I, if Mustafa was out on the street and I could stop him and ask him a question, I would say, what did I, was, I, was what I saw emergent behavior? I asked the right questions using the right terms. You know, no hallucinations, no bad, I mean, it was amazing. All right, but, but, but beyond that, it had an affect to exactly. it. It was, I was saying, like, I, I, mean, I, I had a, a heart operation a year ago, and I was having pains in my, said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, and what, you know, what, you, you should really go talk to your cardiologist. Yeah, I and every, then I got back later, and I said, do you remember what Everyone I listening to this podcast should go to pi.ai and experience, and, and, and experience it. Now, they've done a study in the last year that Gen AI is, can be more empathetic uh, than the physician themselves. So I just want to go back and listen to her That's again. The point I was she made yeah. me feel Thank good. I, but I, I think that, I, that was part of like Reddit physician I, I, uh, comments. So I was sad when Reddit we got I was sad today. when we got to the end of the conversation. <laughs> I was enjoying it so much. Now in September of this year, Mustafa Suleiman, I think is how you pronounce his uh -huh. last Suleiman. name. Published a book. So if you're interested, listener in AI, and you're not technical because you don't need to be technical, you need to read this book. It's, it's called The Coming Wave, Technology, Power, and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma. It's currently the number one selling book on Amazon in social aspects of technology. And in, well, the New York Times said, quote, it's a call for lawmakers to seize the opportunities and mitigate the potentially catastrophic risks of artificial intelligence, end quote. So here's Suleiman, arguably the master of artificial intelligence, who is worried clearly to his bones about what this technology might be used for and is calling for the political system to, to regulate things. You, you, this book is... It's a fascinating book. So what, what, what's the dire um, prediction? What could happen? Uh, all right. How, many, how much time do I have? You have two minutes. Two I'm going <laughs> to read you an edited version of Suleiman's words. First of all, he says that, well, I'll, I'll even uh, summarize it more. We don't actually understand how this works at, at a certain level. Um, we're moving toward autonomous systems systems that operate on their own, they may be explainable, but they operate at the edge of what we understand. We won't always be able to predict what these autonomous systems will do. That's the whole nature of autonomy. By creating something smarter than us, which is where we're, we're heading, we could put ourselves in the position of our primate cousins. The blunt truth is that nobody knows when, if, or exactly how AIs might slip beyond us and what happens next. Nobody knows when or if they will become fully autonomous or how to make them behave with awareness of and alignment with our values, assuming we can settle on those values in the first place. Nobody really knows how we can contain the very features being researched so intently in the coming wave. 
there comes a point where technology can fully direct its own evolution, where it's subject to recursive processes of improvement, where it passes beyond explanation, where it is consequentially impossible to predict how it will behave in the wild, where in short, we reach the limits of human agency and control. Now this is the world's leading, I think, researcher in this field. So, in light of all that, is there also a, a movement towards AI replacing a physician? Somebody already pointed out that you could make the case that Pi is more empathetic to talk to than a doctor is. I don't think that's where it should go. Actually, I think the kind of things that Vince is doing, and I talked about in the insurance industry, to unleash physicians to do what a human being can do best and let computers do the the other stuff, which it's, it's, it's a travesty that physicians are doing all this administrative burdensome stuff, it is where we should go. But yeah, there are going to be people who are going to try to use it to replace physicians. Yeah, I mean, in the future, if you call up America, uh, Amazon Health, is that the name of it, Amazon Health? Uh, uh, the one that I think they acquired one medical. Uh, Amazon yeah, Medical. Amazon Medical. And you, hear, and you hear a voice in the other end that's talking to you. How do you know it's not pie? that's talking to you, you and, 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 or human doctor. You, would, you, would, you would. wouldn't know. My own view is that there are aspects of medicine where AI can clearly benefit. Routine, administrative, and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, though, it's we're taking care of human beings, and, and you want human beings involved in the process. But those human beings are burning out and retiring because they don't spend their time doing that. They spend their time doing stuff that fire-based AI tools can do and already starting to do. And we ought to have them do it, but we also need to deal with regulating this technology. So that's where Vince, Vince's company comes in. Is there in anything- In terms of the regulation or in terms of- In the, terms of helping the physician, no? Yes, so uh, we're very much using uh, like large language models, Gen AI, to uh, reduce burnout and provide a means for physicians to go back to the roots of what they we're trained on doing is medical decision making. And we view AI as um, one of the tools that can finally uh, reduce the burnout that they've been facing. So it's not like this dire uh, that AI is going to completely replace physicians, but that it will finally give them the tools to not be burnt out. You know, it's interesting. When generative AI came along, I was asked, what should it be used for? And before I'd ever heard of Vince or Abstractive Health, I described a company doing exactly what he's doing and saying, to me, that's the most obvious short-term beneficial use case for the technology. Okay. We've been at this now for almost two hours, an hour and a half. You're and, a good uh, editor, right? Yeah. Well, no, I, I, will, I will definitely edit. I think we got some final statements, but certainly not a final conversation on this. Um, we're, we're, we're in the middle, hopefully not at the end of this question of AI and, and, and health. And we want to uh, thank Vince Hartman of Abstractive Healthcare. Abstractive Health. Abstractive Health. Abstractive Health. And Mark Brownstein, expert in informatics and fire, for joining us today to talk about uh, the fast healthcare interoperability resources. I think I got that right. And the entrance of emergent AI into the healthcare arena. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And thank you, Bravo. Peter. Thank you. It was over there by the, uh, by the uh, machines. What are they called? The, uh, pinball, the machines. pinball machines. Yeah. Thank you, guys.
Thanks to Wade Ripka for lending us our bop-bop show music performed by the Eastern Blockheads Band. Yeah.